0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is David Letterman. Dave is, of course, the longtime late-night talk show host, perhaps the most well-known of them all, the late show Late Night, The Tonight Show. He also had his own morning show for a long time, and before he was on national TV, Dave was a weatherman and local radio DJ in his hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana. I have to say that for years, when I have gotten interviewed, people have asked me the question, who would you most like to interview in the world? And along with a few of my public radio colleagues, Ira Glass and Terry Gross, and maybe the old play-by-play guy for the San Francisco Giants, Hank Greenwald, David Letterman is the broadcaster who led me into a career in broadcasting. He's the funniest broadcaster ever. He revolutionized late-night television and comedy on network television. He is, in my opinion, an actual genius. In this interview, we talk about Dave's early days breaking into show business, his time in Indiana and Los Angeles, and his ascent to the late show. We also discuss how his personal life intersected with his professional life. Letterman had multiple affairs with subordinates on shows he hosted. He'll tell me how those relationships affected him, the people around him, and the workplaces. And of course, we'll talk about Letterman's latest project. It's called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. You can watch it on Netflix. In it, Letterman sits down for a long, informal chat with people who quite literally do not need an introduction, Barack Obama, Kanye West, Ellen DeGeneres, and Iron Man himself, Robert Downey Jr.
1: I, when the, when that thing clamps onto your head, yes. is, is that thing really there or is it not really there?
2: Excellent question. It... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Initially, it was, everything was really there. They wanted to spend as little as they could on CG replacement, so... I remember this
2: helmet went on, and like there'd be a shot, and I'd be in this whole suit. And they say, "All right, Robert, you're gonna." It's like you landed on the roof, so when we say action, just go like that, like you just
0: landed, and then start moving forward. So I put this helmet on, and it slammed closed, and I couldn't see anything. And then these LED lights went on, and it was like Manchurian Candidate. Like I could, I was absolutely blinded. By the time we we're doing the Last Avengers, they'd just be like,
2: "Hey, Robert, would you mind putting on that helmet?" No. Yes? No. Put two dots here
0: and then you can paint it in later. David Letterman, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show.
1: Uh, Great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for your time, attention, and uh, interest, Jesse. I
0: I like that question that you asked Robert Downey Jr. It reminds me of, I, I did a show about interviewing, where I interviewed professional interviewers. And I remember Larry King told me that the question that he was most proud of or maybe was most emblematic of his interviewing style was he had an an airline pilot on his show and he asked him the question, when you take off in your airplane, do you know that you're going to be able to land it?
1: Yeah. And (laughs) I was like, what a wonderful question. Yeah, I had come to think of it, I was expecting something (laughs) trivial, but uh, that really is the essence, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like is that helmet a real helmet or not a real helmet? Is, you know, it's the same honest curiosity. You know, this
1: uh, uh, sort of tangential to this when I was a kid, in Indianapolis and working at a television station, which was the, in those days, the ABC affiliate. And I had a, I had a show, I had several shows for one reason or another, but this one show we would have people on that we thought would be interesting. And there was a story in the local newspaper, the Indianapolis Star, about two women who had been cab drivers in the city of Indianapolis for 20 years 25 years 30 years and we thought well this how can this not be great and so they came in and they were all mic'd up and I was in my suit and we were ready to go and I, I introduced them and I said so in all the time uh that you guys you women have have been driving a cab has anything unusual ever happened and there was a long pause no not really okay <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it.
0: I want to talk about uh, when you were a kid. And let's talk about when you were a kid when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a a little bit about your parents and what kind of people they were? Uh, My uh,
1: mother was uh, older than I was. And... uh, (laughs) So was my father. Uh, she and my father got married when she was, uh, I think, maybe five, six years younger than he was. They were both from the same small town in Indiana, the, in southwestern Indiana, which in its day was a uh, strip mining country. They they got married, moved to Indianapolis, and my father well, got a job at a flower shop, although I think he, what he really wanted to do was get into show business. but. When you're from a small town in southwestern Indiana, no one really knows how to get into show business or even if it's legal. And uh, she was very quiet uh, and the hardest working person I've known in my lifetime. And she had a regular schedule of working very, very hard and and doing things that I, I believe today are probably not done regularly, or if they are done regularly, you call someone in to do it, like stripping and waxing the floors, like cleaning the wallpaper, like changing the screens, like painting the woodwork, uh, li- like uh, rolling up the carpets and cleaning them, like doing the laundry by hand, by, by canning fruits and vegetables out of the garden. And it was endless. And it uh It certainly made an impression on me, and one would think that because of this routine, this daily influence, that I would be hardworking, but God, I just uh, couldn't keep up with her. It it was really hard, and I would mow the lawn once a week, and that was my nod to my mother's indefatigability, but it was a crazy, I mean, a very positive trait, but
0: crazy to witness. It's a very different kind of hardworking from the kind of hardworking that you were and are, Um, but I don't want you to suggest (laughs) that you're not (laughs) hardworking.
1: Okay, I won't suggest that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What led you to think that your dad maybe would have wanted to get into show business?
1: Well, first of all, he was uh, funny. Uh, He had a very active, strong sense of humor uh, he would like he would join organizations just so he could like, like uh, uh, there were uh, church groups that he would uh, join uh, at the church we attended and he would become president of those church groups so he could be the center of attention and he would always you know open with funny remarks he was a wonderful musician he he could play the uh, organ the church organ just sit down and play it. And if if anyone knows anything about these organs, it's like flying a helicopter. You're every everything is busy, and he could just sit down and wow, go crazy. And uh, my grandmother, knowing that he was this good as a, an organist, wrote to uh, a radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. The call letters of which uh, escape me now, but it was and it still is AM uh, Clear Channel fifty thousand watt radio station. And in those days. They did quite a lot of live programming, which featured somebody who would play organ music, uh, interludes between programs or as part of the programs. And unbeknownst to my father, my grandmother uh, wrote a letter to the station in Louisville, uh, WHAS, I think maybe the station, asking if it would be possible for, for them to audition my father for, for a job there. And if, if that had happened, I think my father would have been uh, so much happier in his life and our lives would have been quite a lot different, but it, it didn't happen. So he then continued to find circumstances in his life where he could entertain. And, and the, I think the most memorable one was when he uh, discovered he was an alcoholic and joined Alcoholics Anonymous, Again, he became president of the local AA group and he would run the meetings and he would be at the center of attention and he would have funny stories. And so it, it was always apparent that this is a need that he had and uh, a skill that he was really good at. And the gesture of my grandmother recognizing this and trying to get him an audition, uh, I, I think is a, a lovely, looking back on it now, I never really gave much thought to it when I learned of it, but it was a lovely selfless gesture. And I'm, uh, I, I, one wonders what would have happened. Did your mom think your dad was funny? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, she didn't. She, uh, my mother, uh, is taciturn. And when she was being contemplative or just being herself, her, her fa- her face gave one the impression that she was uh, upset or unhappy, and this had a huge effect on uh, the kids. We would always say, "Mom, are you all right?" It's, it's no, I'm I'm fine. I'm just thinking. So that we had to learn to overcome that because the the visual read was that oh my God something something's wrong here. We got a but it, it, routinely was not because when something was wrong, she would become more demonstrative.
0: She was a wonderful character on your show for many years. Did she like going on your? Oh, show? Oh yeah,
1: she um, she enjoyed it, and she was uh, the the most like thing about that show. And uh, n- not not surprisingly, but uh, I will say, and th- this is true for anybody, the the woman that we saw on the show was not the was not the way my mother was when I was growing up. But you know, I was not the way I was growing up when I was on the show either. So that's no uh, diminishment of her. It's just that we, we got to see uh, <clears throat> a different person. And, and it was great. You know, she it was a high point for her at a, at a stage of her life when you, you don't get to do a lot of exciting things. And she found it very exciting and uh, people liked her and, and, and knew of her and always asked about her. So it, it was a good thing and certainly good for the show. I mean, she was great for the show.
0: I like to, I, I am imagining right now how taciturn she must have been in your childhood to have been significantly more taciturn than she was on the air on your television show. <laughs> well, see, now I'm glad you said that because uh,
1: I didn't want to say that, but you're exactly, this is the dynamic I'm discussing.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, how old were you when your father died? I was 27. That must have been immensely difficult.
1: Well, uh, for anyone, uh, you know, there's no... I, I, I guess the circumstance where dad is 100 and passes away in his sleep, I, I've i not experienced that, and I don't know people who have, but, you know, the, the myth medically, I don't know if it holds up as well, you know, died peacefully in his sleep. I, I wonder... If that death in one sleep isn't preceded by misery and agony in the subconscious, but we won't know—certainly not going to find out on this program. Uh, but I can remember getting the call in the middle of the night and knowing exactly what it was. My uh, younger sister called, and when when uh, my wife said, "Your your uh, sister's on the phone," I I knew, and uh, and I you know I drank my way through that. Uh, That's how I got through that. I just, my next door neighbor had a uh, quart of uh, uh, some Canadian whiskey, Canadian Club or whatever it was, and I just that was my constant companion through everything. the The worst of it is picking up the coffin, uh, the casket. That's just that's brutal. That's uh, ugly, unpleasant, and uh, but just I was drunk the whole time, so I managed it.
0: My, I I lost my dad this year. And, um, how old was he? He was 76. And what were the circumstances? If it's any of my business? Uh, he, he had cancer, but he also, um, uh, he had progressive dementia. So, Mm. um, uh, he had, he was present in the moment, but but not much further than that by the time he passed away. So in some ways I was like more scared of him going beyond that in his, in his dementia than, than passing away from the cancer. Like sort the, of, the cancer was, is what killed him. The cancer ultimately was what killed him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and how long
0: had he suffered the dementia? I mean, it had, you know, he had had, uh, it, he had been, <laughs> he was <laughs> forgetful in his forties, you know, but, um, uh, probably, five or seven years it had gotten, you know, Mm -hmm. to the point where he would forget to make himself lunch after he went downstairs to make lunch and that kind of thing.
1: And and that predated the cancer diagnosis.
0: Yeah. So he was a very, um, he was a very convivial man. And that was one of the things that I immediately missed like it wasn't just you know father son intimacy but i just missed hanging out with him mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i i wonder if you enjoyed spending time with your dad in that way and missed that piece of it
1: well it's, it's this is an interesting question uh, uh, my father worked 6 days a week so we didn't really get a chance to hang out much there was a, a vacation uh, once a year for about a week and it would be a car trip to a convention f- for FTD the florist Telegraph delivery and and that was it, we didn't hang out so much but I you know I loved him and what I when he died uh, I went through a, a panic uh, maybe fueled by the, the liquor but that I, I I'd forgotten what he looked like and that That scared the crap out of me because I thought, wait a minute, here's a man I've known all my life and I'll never see again. And I can't remember what he looks like. And that was the deep, troubling panic that uh, befell me. So maybe that's a form of actually missing him. You know, we had activities, but he just didn't have the time to, you know, spend with his kids.
0: I asked you whether your mom thought your dad was funny. Did your mom think you were funny? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, not not many. No, I don't think so. I was.
1: Uh, I used to get my mouth washed out with soap. So, in terms, if you put that in show business terms, that's kind of the ultimate heckler. Uh, here, let me show you how unfunny I think you are. I'm going to shove a bar of soap in your mouth. (laughs) So I I think that was... uh, No, I I don't know, but... I don't know that she had to. I don't know that she needed to. She raised three kids. As far as I can remember, all of us had happy childhoods, uh, with the exception of the the bar of soap here and there. But... uh, it just now it just seems like, well, what was that all about? I mean, it, it certainly wasn't a deterrent, and it it's not the most unpleasant thing a person can endure. But it, now it just seems like, oh come on, <laughs> seriously, the bar of soap, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have scarred me. Um, but I don't know if she thought I was funny or not. I, I can remember when she was on the show if I would make. Uh, an alleged joke, it would be met with, oh, David, which uh, led me to believe she maybe didn't get it or didn't like it. And then she'd come after me with a bar of soap. And I'd say, good Lord, I'm 40. Leave me alone.
0: (laughs) We have more with David Letterman still to come. We found a recording of Letterman's radio reel from 1969, and we're going to make David Letterman listen to it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate. Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH, and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water, that's pretty smart.
2: Congratulations, you've won a ticket to attend an exclusive opportunity in a relaxing environment with two lovers.
1: Wow.
0: Well, this sounds like a sort of proposition of sorts, but really it's an ad for our podcast. Wonderful. It's a show we do here on Maximum Fun where we talk about things that we like and things that we're into. I'm Rachel McElroy, and you just heard Griffin McElroy, and we
2: are excited for you to join us as we talk about movies and music and books.
0: Things like sneezing or the idea of rain.
2: (laughs) Can you get news or information you can use? Absolutely, so.
0: you cannot. Because we're here to talk to you about pumpernickel bread.
2: You can find new episodes on Wednesdays. So catch catch the
0: wave. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, my guest is David Letterman. Letterman is, of course, a longtime talk show host. He hosted over 6,000 episodes of Late Night and The Late Show. These days, he has another show. It's called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. That show's third season just hit Netflix. Let's get back to my conversation with David Letterman. You must have at some point had the idea you were going to go into show business because you went to, you know, you majored in broadcasting in college. Mm-hmm. Did you think you were going to be a, a comic or an actor or a, a TV weatherman, which was, you know, one of your first jobs? Yeah. Did you think you were going to host a TV show about the 4 H club for the rest of your life? Another one of your first jobs. Right. Did you have a scheme?
1: No, I didn't have a scheme. It was so good. I was so lucky that uh, because I I couldn't, uh, I I didn't get very good grades. uh, But I I took a class in public speaking when I was in uh, sophomore in high school. And you had to get up and give uh, an, an ad lib, four or five minute introductory speech in front of the class. That was our first assignment. And I did that. And it was the only thing I can remember doing in school that seemed effortless. Everything else was difficult. And from from that day, I thought to myself, okay, th- this problem is solved. You just have to find a place that'll pay you to do that. And the only logical place seemed to be radio or TV. So I, I studied radio and TV and then immediately started. I got a, a job in, at the same television station when I was still in college. So that was that was very fortunate. And uh, I, I don't know how it works now. I don't know if it's easier or harder to get a job in radio or TV or show business than it used to be. I just don't know. But I, I knew that at the time, me getting a job in show business or television was really easy. Uh, I got very lucky. My A friend of mine, Uh, Jerry Norris, his brother Dick Norris, worked at the television station and they were looking for a summer uh, announcer. And so Dick said, uh, well, how how have your uh, friend Dave come down and audition? So I I went in just as kind of a hoot and for uh, I don't know why, but they gave me the job. And I worked there for three or four years uh, during and after college.
0: Dave, I'm sorry to do this to you, but we do have a clip of, a, of your reel from, I think, in 1969. Oh. Okay, I'm reel. sorry to do this so to gonna- you,
1: Jesse, but I'm getting chest pains, so I'm going to have to call the
2: medics. So don't be alarmed. I'm leaving now. This is Dave Letterman inviting you to blow off all attentions from that first week of classes this weekend at Teenco, a mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike. Friday night, the action is with yours truly and the Irresistible Force. Move to it from 8.30 to 12. Saturday night, Michael T. John Griffin joins the Brand X at Teenco, Co. And the action happens all over again. Remember the place to blow off all that steam this weekend is Team Co. A mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike. Friday night from 8.30 to 12. Yours truly and the Irresistible Force. And Saturday night, same time, 8.30 to 12. Michael T. John and the Brand X. The place is Team Co. One mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike.
0: <laughs> that's a teen code, Dave.
2: <laughs> I I have no memory of that. That's
0: are you certain that's me? <laughs> it's a, a heck of an impression if it's not. Oh, babe. that's
1: that's just crazy. Oh Lord! But I, I'll, I'll tell you something. If if I had stayed doing that the rest of my life, I probably would have been uh, just as fulfilled as uh, I have having taken the
0: other road. Do you think that's true? I mean, I I feel like wh- in in reading about your life and career, there is a really big inflection point, which is that you have a local television career going. You have a job that is you know reasonably locally prestigious. You know, some a guy that appears on the local TV news is a is a big star in uh, anywhere but Los Angeles and New York. You know what I mean? and you're whatever 26 27 28 years old you left town you you packed it all up in a car and went to los angeles to become a stand-up comedian and try and host television programs right
1: but you know had if i had
0: listened to that
1: teen co spot i don't know that i would have ever left because that was solid
0: gold come on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, when <laughs> you got pipes like those, you're what? basically printing money.
1: What, what the hell was Teen Co.? I mean, <laughs> honest to God. Uh, you know what happened? Uh, there's always, uh, you said flexion, is that what you said? Uh, inflection, yeah. Inflection. That's. Uh, I heard a joke the other night about a guy who called a yoga place, was going to sign up for yoga lessons, And the woman said, oh, that's great. We'd like to have you uh, join one of our classes. Uh, May I ask, uh, are you flexible? And he said, well, I can't be there Tuesday. Anyway, (laughs) um, yeah, it was The Tonight Show that changed everything, because you would see young uh, men and women making their comedic debut on The Tonight Show, and the next day or two, they would become huge, huge stars, thanks to Johnny Carson. And I thought, oh, I wonder how you could do that. And then uh, the, I became aware of the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard, which was a feeder system for comics to The Tonight Show. And, and once I found out how it was done, I thought, OK, well, now it's just a matter of getting in line and, and seeing if you ever get your number called, you know, uh, as at a bakery. Did you have an act? No, of course not. Well, Teenco, Co., geez, did you? You never went to Teen Co.? <laughs> well, uh, uh, One Wonders. I couldn't get te- into
0: Teen Co. <laughs> did, I mean, if it's Teen Co. Andy Warhol means- in front of me in line, sure, he got into Teen Co.
1: <laughs> but Teen Co., so you're not, there's no alcohol involved. So what is going on at Teen Co., One Wonders, by way of entertainment? Uh, Cigarette,
0: cigarettes and f- Dave.
1: Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, I thought maybe I would uh, go out there and, and uh, uh, try an act because they, the comedy store had uh, beginner's night and you could go in and, and get on stage and try your two or three or four or five minutes and uh, and that's what I did. And I started with that and kept building on that to, I got right up to the height of mediocrity in terms of stand-up comedy and then it took off like a rocket. When did you get sober? Uh, I think it was 1984, 83, something like that. Yeah, 84. Summer of
0: 84, I believe. So you were were very well into your career by the time you got clean.
1: Yeah. I started when I was a kid, uh, which is, you know, uh, I I think in those days— It was the kind of era when there was a a glass-cut cigarette dish on the coffee table, so anybody who came over wanted to light up in the living room could just light up, and there was always liquor being served. And So I I had my first taste uh, when I was a kid right around Christmas. It was scotch and soda, and I thought, wow, not only is this tasty, it makes you feel much better than I felt a moment ago. So I put in, I certainly put in some hard years <clears throat> and then, uh, I decided I lost one show. The morning show got, uh, taken away. It, I, th- I don't know how long that was on. It, it seemed both uh, quick and lengthy. I, I just don't know, but it came and went nonetheless. So when I got the second show, I thought, geez, if, <clears throat> if I screw this up, I'll be oh and 2. So I realized that drinking every night was, uh, an impediment. It could be an encumbrance. And I would never forgive myself if I drank away this opportunity. So I just uh, bang, zoom, quit. Were you thinking about your dad? Well, I knew I had a problem uh, because of him, uh, but I didn't know that it had affected me the way it affected him. So uh, and and t- several doctors had questioned me about why my liver was larger than it needed to be. And uh, I would just say, oh, I, you know, it's from the factory. I got the big liver. Uh, so I, I knew I was in trouble one way or the other, uh, you know, by the diagnosis or, or by the history of my family. But I just could not have lived with myself if I screwed up by being drunk and, and lost the show, which... I think could have happened, but it didn't. And I, God, I, I, I forget now that I even ever drank. It's been so long.
0: Do you remember how it changed the way you lived your life? I mean, did you have, were there things that you had to look at that you hadn't, that you had been avoiding looking at or, or parts of your life where you could do things that you weren't able to do before?
1: Well, what I know now is that, uh, my entire life, I found ways to self-medicate and, uh, cigarettes and alcohol was certainly one. Uh, The other one was the the television show, because if the television show went well, I would feel good about myself. So there's the the medication of that. And I was lucky enough to do that for a, a long, long time. And if the television show didn't go well, I would, I would Punish myself and be upset and embarrassed and embarrassed for the people who worked with me and embarrassed for the fact that I was on a American television network and then the, the, but the good part was I got to try it again the next day, so you could overcome that. So that was a fairly uh, you know good good version of self medication. Uh, and in between, I, I started running. And uh, so some people do it to the extreme and. I was never extreme, but I—that was also self-medication. But again, a, a positive version of that.
0: Yeah, I get the impression that um, from reading about you and your show, and having talked to people who worked on your show, that your relationship to the show changed as you did it over that. I mean, you—you you were on. You did some version of your late-night talk show for almost thirty-five years, right? But that. Oh, Over time, you sort of receded further and further from the production part Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Were you aware that you were were doing that? I mean, was that something that you were? Uh,
2: Yeah, I I
1: think it was, uh, uh,
0: I I think in my case, it's just hard
1: to spend that level of effort and attention to the same thing for that length of of time. And also in, in the beginning, I was feeling my way through this. And the last thing I wanted to do was have another show canceled. So I didn't know whether it was safer to be more of a regular talk show or safer to be a different kind of talk show that might attract an audience that a usual ordinary talk show might not. So it was always a a bit of push and pull. And then we had restrictions from... The Tonight Show, which w- was useful because we uh, pretty quickly realized that, well, maybe we would be better off doing an unusual kind of talk show. And and then I was so lucky because the people involved from the beginning of that show and, and the morning show uh, were so good that I I could kind of recede and concentrate more on other aspects of the show. So that continued to, to uh, move along as the show moved along and... Uh, also, I think after a while, you just, it takes quite a lot out of you emotionally. Uh, it certainly did me emotionally and creatively and on and on. So th- at that point, I just started to rely on w- what the writers and, and producers and, and directors were, were doing more than actual daily input. You know, I would still have ideas, but uh, the, the heavy lifting was done by the you know the writers and the, the other people in production.
0: When I was very young, I worked on a radio show with a really wonderful, gifted host, and he would walk on stage. It was a live on stage in front of an audience show. He he would like park his car three minutes before live air, sort of walk on stage and and do the show. And I, I worked with the producer of the show, and she would you know try and get him on the phone a couple times a week, and he wasn't rude. He just wanted to be in his own world. And at the time I was like, I don't understand how he could run this show, be the boss of this show and never show up. And then years later, when I had my own shows and, you know, my own staff and business and stuff like that, I really felt the appeal of receding Mm -hmm. because I think I just, um, I wanted to take, all the responsibility <laughs> and like have control over everything but no, but not by intervening by like limiting the scope of my world yeah um and so I just sit here in my home office where I'm talking to you from now, rather than sit at my uh, my desk in the office office just because someone might come talk to me <laughs> if I was sitting at my desk at the office office.
1: Well, this is interesting because i've I've never heard anybody else uh, express this in their own circumstance the way I felt it in my circumstance it 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 does take a toll somehow, I don't know, physically, emotionally, psychically. I can remember talking to Dennis Miller when he had a uh, uh, a late night uh, talk show or a syndicated talk show or something. And we were talking about just this very thing. And he said, don't, he said, let me ask you this. He said, every time I turn around, uh, I'm standing there at the curtain ready to be introduced. And I said, yep, that's the way that goes because time compresses. And the next thing, you know, it's Tuesday and then the next thing you know it's Wednesday and then the next thing you know it's 5 years, 10 years, 20 years. And if you can gird yourself or in in your case hide, uh, it's. I think it's self-preservation is a factor of it.
0: I mean I think there are people who embrace that, um, who like enjoy that. I mean there's certainly I know comics who like the fact that if they go up st- on stage and eat it, that they're just going up again that night somewhere else or the the next night that they they like just being there in the moment and they like the fact that there's always another shot but but to me as somebody who hosts a weekly show that feels like (laughs) all-consuming I feel like to do a daily television show for any length of time much less 33 years terrifies me because of how all-consuming it is
1: yeah it's all-consuming and and you don't realize it because as you describe somebody doing stand-up comedy chances are that's the uh, be-all and end-all of that industry whereas if you're doing a television show you've got hundreds of people interested in hundreds of different things and of course since you're lucky enough to have your name on the show uh, a lot of it comes by you and you think, I, I'm not very good at uh, this kind of thing. Tell me who the, who the guy was who
0: parked his car three minutes before air. I, I just love that story. Well, we're going to have to take it. We're going to have to take it uh, out of the show because I don't want to embarrass him. But it was West Coast Live host, Sedge Thompson. And Sedge, I remember one week, the producer of the show, Kathy Goldmark, This is, I was 23 or 24 years old, something like that. And I'm not getting paid to work on the show. And we were at the Freight and Salvage, a club in Berkeley, and Sedge had gotten stuck in traffic. And the theme music was playing, and I was standing downstage center holding the microphone because Kathy had said, you have to start the show if Sedge doesn't get here on time. This is great. <laughs> and while the theme music was playing, Sedge came, in the sta- came through the <laughs> stage door.
1: Now, I'm interested why if, if Sedge were to hear this, I don't know what about this would be unflattering to him because this just fills me for admiration for a guy I've never met.
0: (laughs) I'm glad. He's just a very, very gifted host. Yeah, I guess so. I
1: I just love the idea that he's parking
0: his car on his way to the theater. That's cool. (laughs) So especially, I think, in the mid-late 80s, you had a reputation for... uh, for being mean to guests. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, right. And I wondered if you felt like you were picking on guests on purpose, Mm -hmm. if that was your intent, or if you were surprised that people reacted in that
1: way. Well, I know exactly what this is because the first time I hosted the tonight show, And one of the guests, the first guest out. So this is my first ever behind the desk, behind Johnny's desk. And the first guest comes out and it was, I think it was Jane Meadows. I'm not sure. And before she even sat down, uh, I said, oh, they must have had a sale on jewelry uh, or something. Some stupid joke about she was wearing big jewels and uh, I got roasted for that people that oh he's so mean why the woman and th- what it was is I was I I was so driven to the goal of letting people know forcing people to know that I was funny that it later seemed uh, aggressive well from the beginning seemed aggressive and therefore mean and I I'm well aware of that I yeah, that was a mistake. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't being mean. I just wanted to prove. Yeah, what? I, I guess I'm funny. Uh, so I had to apologize to a lot of people. And 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 again, if I were starting out, I would. Uh, but but again, if you're starting out, all you wanted people to know is you're funny. That's all I had. That's all I ever had was I can I can try to make people laugh, and I wasn't about to waste time. I, I mean. I didn't even to wait till the, the, the woman was seated in the chair before I made fun of her jewelry. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> and that's like, that's fear talking, right? You're in front of an audience. That's right. That's exactly what it was. You, you spent 33 years doing a daily show. And the way you talk about it now makes me wonder if you would have made an entirely different choice retrospectively uh,
1: in terms of what I did for a living in terms of the length of the run in terms
0: of yeah I mean I think you might I, I'm i not suggesting that you wouldn't have gone into show business or you wouldn't have done comedy but I, I wonder the way you talk about going out and doing a TV show every day for that length of time whether you feel like that might have been even in part a mistake well um, perhaps, but I, that's all I could do. There's nothing
1: else I could do. I maybe could have written for a show. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I couldn't, I can't, I can't do anything. I don't have any, I mean, anytime I'm asked to participate in a comedy presentation, like a sketch or something, I, I don't, I feel, I don't know. I can't do it. I, I can't act. I can't sing. I can't dance. Uh, all I can do is make fun of somebody in their jewelry, so uh, I've I've kind of gotten to the point where the best part of this for me was actual talking, and I don't know when this happened, but it it, it evolves where I uh, the the fear of making people laugh diminished, and the idea that a person that I don't know but who I admire. I can talk to that, that became highly appealing. And, and toward the end, the last 10 years or so, we would be an editing almost to airtime trying to cut down the, the talk segments because I couldn't stop talking to, to whomever the guest was. So that is a, a residue of the show, but I, it's not, not so much different. I mean, honestly, I'm, I don't know what else I can do and, and ask, ask my son, for heaven's sakes, I, uh, uh, I, I I do everything at about a C minus level. And I guess that's good enough for a talk show.
0: We'll finish up with David Letterman after a break. Stay with us. We have so much more to talk about with Dave. After the break, we answer the eternal question. How many Spider-Men can you fit into a Jamba Juice? And where did Dave get the idea to put them in there? Also, wizards. There were also some wizards. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Today Ticks. With the Today Ticks app, getting tickets to your favorite shows is a fast, easy process. This Cyber Monday, use Today Ticks as your go to hub for everything from theater and arts to comedy and opera. Try todayticks now by going to todaytickscom bullseye and use promo code bullseye to get $10 off your first purchase. Since the 1980s, hip-hop and America's prisons have grown side by side.
2: And we're going to investigate this connection to see how it lifts us up and holds us down.
0: Hip-hop is talking about what we live, trying to live the American dream, failing at the American dream. I'm Sydney Madden.
2: I'm Rodney Carmichael. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR
0: Music. Where we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is David Letterman. For over 30 years, Dave was a late-night TV host. In this public radio host's opinion, the best who ever did it. These days, his newest project is on Netflix. It's an interview show called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. The third season just dropped. Let's get back into the interview. I want to play a bit from the show because... I hope it's the teen (laughs) co-spot. This is a bit that I, I cannot even begin to tell you how much of my mind is occupied by this bit at any given time. I think it probably ranges from like two to 28 percent of my of my <laughs> mental capacity is occupied by this bit from from the late show uh, your CBS show uh, that's called how many spider-mans fit in a jamba juice oh, okay yeah and this is a static shot so you've got a locked off across the street shot of a jamba juice in Manhattan that has a big picture window mm-hmm and you're in the studio uh, at your desk uh, with a you know walkie-talkie or a telephone handset or, or, or something like that. And you're sending guys in Spider-Man suits, a broad variety of people in Spider-Man right. suits, yeah. some Spider-Man-like in their physique, some less so, um... In, into the studio, uh, and as we as we're about to listen in, you've just sent in three Spider Men simultaneously, bringing it to a total of five Spider Men in the Jamba Juice. Okay.
2: At five, we
1: ran out of the red boots. <laughs> <laughs> we had to go to the, with the black boots for I, one of the Spider Men. I, I did, does. All right, let's just let this uh, simmer for a moment. <laughs> I wonder if uh, we can get them to mill around. I don't know. Could you guys mill around a little bit like you're at a high school dance or something? Yeah. just That's good. Kind of a meet and greet. Say hi to everybody. Hey, how's it going? Good to have you here. Do you get a lot of Spider-Man
2: in these places?
1: And at these prices, you won't get many more. All right. Send in five. Let's just run it all the way up to ten.
0: There's a point where you run out of Spider-Man and start sending in wizards. (laughs) Dave, do you have a feeling for how you, uh, (laughs) what the right kind of dumb thing to do on your show was?
1: Well, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question because there, in the world of dumb things, you would think there is no right thing to do. But this <laughs> is a prime example of the right dumb thing to do. And and again, it, it uh, uh, harkens to our discussion previous, which is, as you can see, I'm not doing anything here. This was <laughs> not my idea. They told me what the idea was. All I have to do is make uh, wise-ass remarks and cue in, people in uh, costumes that may or may not be spider man And I, I don't know what the outcome was hoped for, whether it would be the police would come or it's, it's clearly it's a peaceful demonstration, uh, but it is civil disobedience in a Jamba juice. <laughs> and I don't know, but it was, uh, it, it delights me now to have been part of that. Uh, when I, when I hear it is, Yeah. And the thing I like about that is, I think in those days, you might not have
0: seen much of that on television. <laughs> no, I think that was that was pretty much the golden age of sending Spider-Man into <laughs> juice restaurants on television. Yeah, they were doing yeah. that on Mad About You at the time.
1: <laughs> but it, uh, again, one wonders because I was always a stickler, and it was my way of saying no to many things. I said I would say to whomever, "All right, we need a beginning." All right. And we have a middle. What we don't seem to have here is an end. Uh, And that usually would kill the bit. So I wouldn't have to worry about uh, extending myself. But this clearly has no end. But yet it was uh, endless fun for me. And we did it. I think the only time we really got in trouble was uh, tax time. It was H&R Block. And we uh, sent in, I'm not sure what we sent in, but it was the same joke. And the H and block people—I don't remember if it was H or R—but uh, one of them got really worked up and came running out and was threatening people with uh, short forms, and uh, we <laughs> had to had to call a halt to it.
0: A lot of your show, especially in the early days, was built around kind of odd symbols of mid-century camp, um, things like canned hams and. I think you had a reputation at the time for being for being a, some kind of enfant terrible, like you were <laughs> like you were dismissing all that stuff, like you were contemptuous of all that stuff, and I kind of wonder if it wasn't maybe a little bit the other way around, like you really love a watermelon exploding or a canned ham, and I wonder like what are your favorite corny things?
1: Well, the canned ham. Uh, th- this is left over from adolescence. I, I can remember as, as a child thinking it was odd that here was this can full of meat. And then when you could get pretty much a 5, 10, 20-pound ham in a can, I don't know, I just thought, is this the best delivery version of, of pork? And it, <laughs> it, 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 it amused me. Uh, I can remember we would give them out before uh, in the in the audience warm-up. And I took a question one night from a guy, and uh, he said, "You know those canned hams?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "I was here about four years ago, and he gave me a canned ham." And I said, "Well, congratulations! You're, you know, one of the lucky few." And and he said, "But he said, I went home and I I put it on my uh, mantle in the family room, and about two years later, the thing exploded." <laughs> and he <laughs> said, "Hey, dumbass!
0: I think you're supposed to refrigerate those." <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you did 10,000 Willet floats. I was never disappointed to see Willet float on the lake. Well, show.
1: that again, that's me being lazy. I mean, rather than but, come up but with but a new idea. but hold on, Dave. But
0: that's true. I'm not gonna, I'll grant you that <laughs> it was a well used runner. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something, there was something about your genuine glee. Mm-hmm. At the question of whether something would mm-hmm. float, that is, f- that feels like something that could be on, uh, that like soupy sales could be hosting yeah. or something.
1: Well, uh, that's that's flattery, but uh, I li- I just as an idea, uh, as a, an experiment in uh, uh, physics uh, displacement. Uh, you know, it seems like, uh, yeah, that is infinitely refillable. Just well, let's see if it floats. Let's see if this floats. Let's see if that floats, and and often uh, surprising results. So there you go. Uh, you could could have learned something if you were paying attention. So I,
0: I appreciate
1: that uh, the vote of uh, support for will it floats.
0: One of my favorite parts in in Jason Zinnemann's biography of you is him basically quoting a series. This is how I remember it anyway. Him basically quoting a series of writers. And you know the the writers on your show that he talked to were progressively further from frequent direct interaction with you over the years of the show, and you were a more famous person and a more you know legendary comedy figure type dude, uh, and they were a little scared of you by the end. But like it's clear that the one thing that they all shared was immense pride in. Thinking of a joke, not only that you would approve of, not not just that you would like the perfect joke, but that they had thought of a joke that had a word in it that they thought you would enjoy saying. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And they would like, they would be, that was what gave them, that was how they knew that daddy loved them. Was <laughs> <laughs> Was when they was when they were like, oh, he's going to enjoy saying synecdoche or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: good. I'm I'm glad that they found uh, some enjoyment out of those years.
0: <laughs> um, did you think later about whether they were having enjoyment out of those years? Um,
1: here, here was what I thought would work to try and be generous in ways to indicate my pleasure with their service and and that's that was my philosophy and now i realize that while that was a philosophy i don't know that it conveyed the meaning i hoped it would and perhaps more personal interaction would have but this is when i when i talk about uh, when I left the show, I realized I had been there too long. And I now know so many more things about myself, so many more things about people and the world uh, that I would, were I to be 30 again and given a show with that information, I would run it completely differently. And and one of the first things I would do would be term limits. I I, I don't think you You know, if you can't get it said in the first five or six years of a TV show, it's not going to happen in 30 years. But it becomes, I guess, like a daily newspaper where, you know, there are enough things coming in that one can comment on or make fun of. But there's there's no reason for these things to last that long, certainly not in my case. In Johnny's case, I see clips of him from year two or three to uh, the last year And it's the same. It's just so consistent, so effortless, not trying hard, not breaking a sweat, that it was easy, easy to watch and and hard hard to miss when it was gone.
0: I mean, I'll say that um, I also think for a viewer, which is the position I was in, there's a lot of value to in a daily show like yours, to visiting your friend. You were certainly my television friend, you know what I mean? Like, the length of that relationship, even if you're not necessarily saying something, is meaningful. And I think, especially in the later years of your show, often the, the best segments were, you know, you turning to Paul Schaefer and saying a little funny thing that happened to you, which were the ones that were, you know, closest to... Being social rather than having something to say, right? Um, and so it's kind of a different thing. But
1: yeah, it, <clears throat> that um, there's two two uh, pieces to that. One of which is uh, I have to credit Regis Philbin, uh, who was to me just the best at what he did, and and he began every day of his life on television talking about how. Uh, Joy burned the bacon, or he couldn't find his loafers, and because it was Regis, and and you just automatically loved him, that was that was great. So I, I I remember thinking, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if I could emulate that. That was the A, and the B of it was was Paul Schaefer, who uh, I, I grew to really love over the years because he and I were out there every night, good and bad, night after night after night. I don't know how many shows, but it was always Paul and myself. And I felt like uh, Paul and I were in in the trench together and nobody else had the same expectation or same reaction to that experience besides myself and Paul. So uh, I felt very comfortable talking to Paul about it. But the initial thought of doing that, and then I got to the point where y- your ego overwhelms you and you think, oh, well, this will be so much funnier. Than anything else I can do. Maybe that's true one out of a hundred, but typically not that true. But on the other hand, I don't know that Regis was the, the funniest man on television, but he was certainly the guy you wanted to watch.
0: So you had a lot of romantic relationships with people who worked on your show. And, you know, you obviously dealt with that on the air, late in the show's run. You've dealt with it since and talked a lot about your regrets in that area. One of the things that at the time on the air, you didn't talk a lot about was because you were understandably focused on the effect that this had on your family, um, was the effect that it had on your workplace. Have you changed how you see, like, well, I guess two questions. One is, did did you realize the effect it was having on your workplace when it was happening in the, you know, 80s or 90s or whenever? And did your thoughts about how it was affecting your workplace, or have they changed since?
1: Well, uh, <clears throat> I, I have to say that uh, a lot of my life was led in ignorance, and it wasn't till after the fact that I realized uh, how, how damaging that situation was. And the absolutely, like I said, I've changed uh, quite a few things about how I feel and think, and about other people and relationships with them, and what what's a, a positive way to. Uh, live one's life uh, that I, I I never gave much thought to. I was always more concerned with the uh, the hour between five thirty and six thirty or four thirty and five thirty, whatever it was. Uh, that's that was all consuming and all consuming to uh, I, I think uh, things that needed attention for me didn't get the, the right kind of attention. So. I have learned from that, realized I was making mistakes, and have tried to make amends.
0: What's it like to live with those feelings of remorse?
1: Well, uh, I talked to people, and they have said to me, You can't change it. This all happened. Uh, you're responsible all anyone can do is is apologize and do what mending is 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 required or needed or at least attempted to mend and uh, don't don't do that again and as clumsy as that sounds that's the basis for how I'm looking at life now
0: Dave, I've taken too much of your time, but thank you very, very much. Just please, can we hear it one more time? Seriously. Please, let me hear it. Kevin,
1: we please. need to hear about Teen Co. Just once more.
2: This is Dave Letterman inviting you to blow off all attentions from that first week of classes this weekend at TeenCo, a mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike. Friday night, yeah. the action is with yours truly and the irresistible force. Move to it from 8.30 to 12. Saturday night, Michael T. Wow. John Griffin joins the brand X at Teenco, and the action happens all over again. Remember, the place to blow off all that steam this weekend is Teenco, a mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike. Friday night from 8.30 to 12, yours truly and the irresistible force. And Saturday night, same time, 8.30 to 12, Michael yeah. T. John and the brand X. The place is Teenco, one mile east of Post Road on Pendleton Pike.
1: Yeah, and I think the key word there is action. <laughs> thank you, Kevin.
0: Well, Dave, I, I'm very grateful that you took this time to talk to me. It's a it's a real dream for me to get to talk to you. I, I wouldn't be in this job if it, if it weren't for your work.
1: It's very kind of you, Jesse, and I've uh, uh, enjoyed this immensely. And uh, again, thank you for your interest and thank you for the time.
0: David Letterman. All three seasons of My Next Guest Needs No Introduction are streaming now on Netflix. There are some really great interviews there. Go check it out. That's it for another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where here in my house, my youngest son, Frankie, wanted a second beverage after his evening beverage my wife did not want to give it to him uh, because he does not wear a diaper to bed and uh, he said to my wife this is a direct quote a body needs two dinks that's science the show is produced by speaking into microphones our producer is kevin ferguson jesus ambrosio and jordan cowling are our associate producers We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Our special thanks this week to Tom Keeney, Letterman's executive producer, who helped facilitate this interview. We're very grateful to Tom for making that happen. Extra special thanks to two people in my life, My friend, Sedge Thompson, my old boss, the host of West Coast Live, a truly gifted radio host and a kind and generous boss. And uh, I hope that you weren't embarrassed by that anecdote. And also, in the interest of talking about mental health, how about a thank you to my therapist, Dr. Munson. She suggested one of the questions in this week's episode because she is a huge fan of David Letterman. If you want to hear the latest about what we are up to on Bullseye, you can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.